Welcome to Hope Beyond the Badge, a podcast that brings awareness, inspiration, and conversation together for first responders, families, and others interested in mental well-being in first response. New episodes weekly with your hosts, Jay Bailey and Linda Kokoros. Jay is a father, a military veteran, worked in the fire service for 18 years, and carries a diagnosis of PTSD. Linda is a mom, a wife, a certified life coach for first responders, and a suicide loss survivor of a first responder. Let's talk about it. Today's guest on the show is Joe Willis. Joe is the chief learning officer at First Help. For anyone not familiar with First Help, That's an organization that honors the service of first responders who have died by suicide, supports their family members, and helps bring awareness to responder PTSD. Joe is a retired U.S. Army First Sergeant with over 20 years of law enforcement and military experience. As the Chief Learning Officer at First Help, he oversees learning development and the organization's marketing efforts. Joe, we're both very, very excited to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We're looking forward to hearing about your military career, about your experience as a first responder, and all the good stuff that you're doing with First Help Now. Uh, Before we get into all that, would you mind taking a moment to introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, so thank you so much, Linda and Jay, for giving me this opportunity to a, spend the time with you guys and, and uh, tell the, the first help story a little bit. So yeah. um, you already covered the, the high points, Jay. Retired military police first sergeant, uh, just a little over 20 years in that business, retired in 2016, and went immediately into the uh, the tactical training space as a uh, contract trainer. And uh right off the bat met Karen like in 2016 as I'm retiring I meet Karen Solomon from First Help and at the time it was Blue Help it was fledgling and just kind of really you know starting off and um I, I kind of attached myself to them and eventually they just realized I wasn't going to go away and they they finally gave me a <laughs> uh, position on the board so um truly honored to to serve in that capacity and now you know the the work i do is taking that data and those stories that you're so intimately familiar with um Mm -hmm. and making them matter in the educational sense getting left of the problem and and really kind of bringing that uh positive psychology component into uh the the concepts of well-being and getting ahead of the problems as best we can Uh, but then also just raising awareness for the work we do in the Mm -hmm. aftermath of suicide yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, we're so happy to have you on here, Joe, tonight. Um, just to be talking about, you know, all of that and the the expertise and the knowledge that you guys have as first help to be able to sort of share that with our audience um, going forward. But let's before we get into all of that, let's take it back here because you have a lot of experience here as a police officer yourself and in the military, right? Take us, take us back to even to those younger days. Like, how did you, how did you even get there? Did you always want to be a police officer? No, actually, I wanted to be a firefighter. So my firefighter. dad was a, a volunteer firefighter, and eventually uh, became a fire chief uh, in a, a small town in New Hampshire. And I, um, that that was my goal. Like, I, I was, I was going to be a firefighter, and then um, realized that you know I wanted to join the army first, get the GI Bill, all that kind of thing. 
And when it came time to reenlist, I you know was insistent like uh, if if I can't be a firefighter in the army, I'm gonna you know get out and either be a firefighter or a cop. At that point, I kind of started to lean into the law enforcement space as well, and so went back to New Hampshire and tested, and uh, was ready to get out. And then they made military police available for reenlistment. And I was mm. like, oh, you know what? There's a lot of good benefits to staying in. I'm already progressing. And let me give that a try. Do one enlistment as a uh, an MP. And uh, my first assignment was in Korea. And I got to see a part of the world I'd never seen before. Got to experience a lot of uh, really cool things on all sides. Those familiar with the military police corps, you know, you know, one day you are in the field with Humvees and uh, the big guns. And then the next day, uh, you're working the road on, on law enforcement, responding to everything that uh, civilian law enforcement does just in a, a different environment. And um, so, you know, I, I, I fell in love with it. I, I never, you know, once I had a taste of what that was like, uh, never wanted to leave it. I, I realized I had the uh, the drive for service in that space. Mm. Um, and so throughout my career, I was very fortunate and getting to bounce back and forth uh, throughout the majority of it between a good mix of those combat support, uh, combat service type uh, assignments where, um, you know, in the field and that kind of stuff, and yeah. then uh, some law enforcement. And so my two tours in Iraq, one was uh, as an investigator, a military police investigator assigned to uh, investigate the incidents at Abu Ghraib. Um, and interesting story there, whole whole winding road of uh, the experiences associated with that and working for the defense in that case, um, something I never thought I would do. And then um, my second trip was as an operations sergeant over uh, military police operations at the division level. And so I got to, you know, uh, oversaw canine, oversaw the uh, site exploitation teams. So a, a lot of really cool opportunities there. And then, you know, went back and, and did the law enforcement thing for a little while. So I uh, had, you know, a, a good wide variety of experience. When I was kind of coming to the end of my career, though, um, had two back-to-back -back assignments to the United States Military Academy that had nothing to do with being an MP. In fact, uh, you know, Jay, you may you know, re relate to this. Like, I really wanted to be a first sergeant again. I had already done one tour as a first sergeant. And so I was negotiating with my branch, the military police corps branch, about how I could get to do that again. And they said, you have to go to Hawaii and do the inspector general gig there. And I said, absolutely. If, if I get to be a first sergeant in the back end and I get to do inspector general time, you bet. Um, somehow, a convoluted story, I end up doing equal opportunity at West Point, nowhere near Hawaii, West Point, New York, nowhere near Hawaii, yeah. but it changed the trajectory of my career. Uh, two back-to-back -back assignments there, first as equal opportunity program manager for the academy, and then I got to be the senior enlisted for military instruction there. So wow. uh, one of 13 uh, non-commissioned officers to, to teach uh, in the Department of Military Instruction at West Point. And, um, wow. Fell in love with that level of education. I'd always been a trainer at heart, but really realized there was a lot more to education mm. uh, and turning training into education during that period of my career. And um, left that assignment and went to uh, First Army uh, at Fort Lewis, uh, 189th Infantry Brigade, where I served as the, uh, the senior operations NCO there as well. And um, it was entirely about training and education and partnering with units to prepare for readiness. And it really brought me into that space of how the individual 
contributes to organizational readiness and their individual readiness as a human being, the role that plays in operational readiness. And as I started to pull the thread on all of that, it, it, I think that's really between the in, incidents at Abu Ghraib, which were formative for me in realizing the human dimension and what operational stress can do to an organization. Mm. Fast forward through a deep dive education on uh, resilience and organizational culture that I got in preparation for my time at West Point and then while I was there serving in that capacity. And then finally, my, my final retirement gig uh, in the Army, you know, just before I retired, uh, spending two years with the uh, 1st Army unit, really, you know, partnering with alongside Reserves and National Guard who are full-time soldiers, regardless of, you know, what the media might tell you or regardless of what the advertising tells you. When you're a soldier, you're a soldier. Whether you do it on weekends and, and one week a month, uh, these men and women are, are soldiers like anyone else, and uh, their operational readiness is dictated by so many other factors that mm -hmm. are happening in their family lives, and uh, many of them take a huge pay cut to come on to active duty, uh, you know, leaving great civilian jobs to, to serve, and so um, really huge huge trajectory in learning during that time. Wow. What, you want to chime in there, Jay? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm still, I'm still taking it all in. And Me too. What, um, what a lot of great information. I was particularly yeah. uh, taken aback when, when you talked about individuals, uh, how the individual readiness contributes to organizational readiness. And um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that and maybe even how that uh, transfers into what you do now with, with, with First Help and how that thought process or that observation has, uh, has developed for you over time. Yeah. So um, I think the short version is, you know, when, when you spend that time in those leadership spaces and you're leading people in those high operational stress environments, um, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, working with uh, the dog teams in Iraq during my second deployment, as well as the uh, site exploitation teams. And then years later, uh, coming back and working with the reserves and National Guard uh, as they prepared to go out on these, you know, future deployments. The There's something that happens when you spend time face to face, you know, almost knee to knee with somebody in that environment just before or during their time of, you know, high operational stress that, I don't know, something happens to you as a leader in, in that space. And uh, today, as I work on the responder readiness program that we have at First Help, that is our driving force. And I, I got this, you know, wide eye awakening during my, you know, time investigating Abu Ghraib. And, uh, you know, the, the experiences I had there were, these are human beings who some of them did absolutely horrendous things. But when you start to pull on organizational culture cords and, you know, really kind of dive into the values and beliefs of that organization that led to those things, mm -hmm. some of the leadership decisions that were made, and you realize that these are individual people. So regardless of what they did when they did it, when you look at the, you go up to, you know, 50,000 or 100,000 foot view, the view is entirely different. Mm. And the things you're able to see, the decisions that are being made at strategic levels that are impacting mm -hmm. that frontline person, mm -hmm. you, you can't ignore that. And yeah. so somewhere in there as, as a leader, I started to really kind of develop a, an affinity for it or, or a, a a, a passion about it yeah. 
so, you know, at West Point, this was during the formative years. Like if, if folks are, are familiar with Dr. Martin Seligman's work and uh, the um, uh, positive psychology movement within the army. So, you know, Seligman was, you know, president of APA and really deeply invested in um, the, the positive psychology movement long before it was even a, a real thing. Um, this gets brought over to the army just about the time I'm finishing up my first sergeant time. I send people to UPenn to go to the master resilience training course. They come back and I notice immediately my marksmanship scores are going up, my overall training, and we're just doing much better. Once we start introducing positive psychology and resilience at the company level, Mm -hmm. then I go to West point where a lot of this is being done. The academics there are very much involved in performance enhancement and, and that sort of thing in the you know positive psychology movement that's happening. And so I kind of start getting a trickle feed of that. Then I get back out into the operational army and I, it just becomes that much more apparent to me as I'm working alongside high stress individuals. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what drove me into this space that I'm in today. Yeah. Wow. I'm like so excited getting into this conversation. I'm jumping ahead because, first of all, I want, I'm looking at you on the camera and I want to like get to know Joe. First of all, he's doing all this military stuff and he's doing all the first response stuff and he's a police officer himself and he's doing all this training. But they're also, during this time and, all, uh, and your service, sir, is that you had to also witness some horrific stuff too, right? Sure. Yeah, so... Um I think, you know, one of the things that um, really, so when we look at the concept of, of PTS and the, the population that is uh, af- afflicted by that within the military, roughly about 15% was what the, the research showed back in like 07, 08, as this was really kind of starting to kick off. The early days of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were kind of coming to a head and when we kind of looked at the, I say we, at this point, I wasn't even involved in it. I wasn't even a student of it at that point. Um, they're looking at it. They said 85% aren't suffering. So you got this 15% that is experiencing it. Myself, Jay, like, we've, we've, we're there. We have the diagnosis. But what about that 85% that either isn't being diagnosed, which I, I think you know research shows that there's probably – among that 85%, a population, a number that hasn't been diagnosed yet. But there's also a number that isn't diagnosed, but has seen many of the same things. So what happened there is really what they wanted to, to research. So back to the original point. Yes, uh, to this day, there are still some things that when I close my eyes, I see, and it uh, affects me in, in ways that, you know, it's at one point, uh, my now ex-wife, which there's probably a little bit of a story there as far as how all of that ties together, um, wouldn't let me be sleepy near my son because I would wake up and, you know, expect him to had, had many incidents in rapid succession with young children. And I would freak out as, as I was drifting off to sleep. I would, you know, when I was near him. And so, um, yes, those things still kind of haunt, you know, my memories. But for the most part, though, 
I've become very intentional about leaning into that space of what do you do with this, right? You know, after getting some some good talk therapy, I have not been to EMDR. My my current therapist actually does EMDR. We just haven't started it yet. Um, but the uh, and I'm a huge advocate. Everybody who says they've tried it has tried it. Uh, you know, I I get such positive feedback. I'm like, yeah, just give it a try. I just hadn't yet, and I'm uh, about to. Um, but the uh, for the most part, though. I've really started to lean into that. How do you get past it? How do mm. you how do you move from where I'm at today, some somewhat disabling at points, uh, to okay, yeah, I've got it. Now what do we do? Move on, move forward. And so um, I don't know if that answers your question. Then it kind of like you know put, tugged on something that I wasn't necessarily expecting just yet. So I hope that answered your question. Yeah, it did. I mean, I mean, I wanted to get to know a little bit about Joe because you have so much experience, right? And of teaching others resilience and lots and lots of training years of training um in west point in in all different areas and yeah i i wanted to hear a little bit about joe personally right i want our listeners to be able to hear about you and your experience your own personal experience which i also think is a drive right is a is a is a driven part of why you want to why you want to continue to do this right um, in this area um, what's what's your purpose what drove you into your purpose to lead you here and that's sort of just where I wanted to get at um, even though I know you're you, you have that sort of military sort of thing going on like like this guy um, right. but just there's just there was I felt there was something behind there also that I wanted to hear um, as far as like what's your story you know I think so thanks Linda for for asking that and I, I think one of the things that many of us do in this space. And, you know, we, uh, we get out, we try to serve. I was just talking to somebody who was in a residential treatment facility and the entire time they were there, uh, they were looking much like I would. And, and you probably would identify this with, uh, with this as well, looking at ways that they could use what they're learning there to help others or yeah. to recommend things or like what treatment works best. And sometimes, you know, being asked that question, and I, I'm sincerely appreciative of you you tugging on that just a little bit because Thank you. Um, you, you get into these places, you know, and I, I spent a lot of time there, and, you know, executive strategic level of how do I make this matter and what can I do with it? Well, you're absolutely right. I am, uh, you know, 46, I think, year old, retired military police first sergeant. Uh, that's all the career stuff. But yeah. um you know, at the end of the day, yes, I am a divorcee after 18 years. I'm currently, you know, happily married. We've been together for, uh, I think we're going on eight now. And yeah. it's uh, the, the most wonderful years of my life. But uh, I didn't get here on accident. And yeah. it's, it's not without hard work. And some, you know, and I've got three kids who each with their own challenges. I won't, you know, since this is public, I won't go into all of that. With yeah, them, yeah, but, yeah. Um, you know, the, the reality is we're all human and yes. uh, we all have our experiences. And so you are 100% spot on. And thank you for taking a moment to just kind of, you know, look me in the eye and say, well, what about you? How are you? Well, and yeah. I genuinely appreciate that. Oh, thank, thank you. you. I mean, I, I felt that from you. I mean, yeah, this guy has a story and I, I want to know it. And um, what drives him so strongly to be so passionate about what he's doing mm. and, and what keeps him that passion even though you're not you, you you didn't come out and talk about that hey you know I did this and I saw a lot of stuff in, in my time and I have PTS right so um 
you know, you didn't you didn't start off with that, but I was very eager to hear. Uh, I want to get to know a little bit about Joe personally. What drives you? And uh, now I know. Um, so I want to get into the, that a little bit, right? Because First Help is an organisation who's helped my our family. We lost Alex in two thousand and eighteen, and um, we didn't meet. First Help right away. It was about probably a year and a half before we discovered First Help. And then once we did, um, you know, we were sort of taken under the wing. And we and the beautiful part was, um, you know, making connection with other families, even through a tra- tragic um, loss of our own and all other families. We got to be able to connect with other families with no judgment and no stigma um, and all of that to go with it, and bonds that will last for a lifetime. And we're still able to continue to help um, ourselves, you know, families that we have met, but also new families, unfortunately, um, that are coming into that group that we don't want to all be a part of, um, but we are. And we're also able to help and support other families um, who have probably recently lost a first responder to suicide. Um, I want to get into, you know, First Help, share with our listeners what First Help does and sort yeah, of so there's different parts of it and there's lots of different parts of it and I, I want them to hear it all, if you don't mind. Yeah, and if, if you're, you know, willing, I, I don't know how much you've had a chance to talk about this with other guests. Up oh, to all this the time. Point, your experience. Yeah, so the, um, my, yeah, so engage me in the conversation as we go along, if you yeah. would, because uh, you've had one aspect of this experience that I'll never have. And I, uh, our, our whole purpose for existing is it initially started with the family members. Yeah. And, um, you know, this was back in 2016. So uh, Karen Solomon and Jeff McGill were working on a book uh, together. Steve Huff uh, was also involved in that process called The Price They Pay. And during that time, uh, as the stories started to reveal themselves, so did the lack of resources prior to critical incidents. But in the aftermath of critical incidents, the agencies and individuals were struggling with that. So Karen, Jeff, and Steve kind of set off on this journey to find those resources. Well, it's difficult to start compiling resources unless you fully understand the problem. And and Jeff is an academic and uh, Karen and Steve both is very pragmatic and, you know, solutions-based people. They wanted to fully understand what was happening. So they started collecting data and um, that data comes in the form of numbers lost to suicide. Well, nobody knows better than you what one number represents. Mm. And when we started to find families in the same space, struggling with that same thing, it became this ad hoc community. And you, you hit the nail on the head. Like when we see the families come together once a year at our annual dinner or at our various walks, which you've participated, actually you've participated, you've been very instrumental in, in some of these walks. And so um, the, something happens like this, this connection this gelling this, I'm not alone experience and uh, a realization that though, you know, shared experience of loss is in, in this very intimate way mm-hmm. is something that you know the, the majority of the world can't comprehend and yet 
somehow in this moment you find joy, like you find connection and you find something and to stand outside of that and watch it has been truly magical for me. Mm. And I think Karen and Jeff and Steve and, uh, Robin and all the other board members and advisors would all say the same thing. And so am I hitting the nail on the head as far as that, that magic that happens that gelling that happens there? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, that gelling does happen. And I think that uh, one word that came to my head when you were speaking there, um, Joe was exhale. Um, cause I, I feel that, you know, for that year and a half that we had no one, right. We were lost. We were sort of like, did not know where to go, right? Nowhere to turn. And um, and I felt that it was like that tightness, like holding your breath um, constantly because you just had, you, you didn't know where to be able to unload, right? You, um, there was no support coming from the department at the time. There was no, there was none of, none of that happening and we just didn't know where to go. And um, so... My experience was <sighs> exhale, yeah, exhale, and um, exhale, yeah. and uh, I I can breathe again, um, because I now have this other family who are also feeling the same way. I I'm not pointing over Jay, but Jay is not that family. But I'm sort of doing this other family beside me, um, that it's I have this other family who's going through the same experience that we're going through and um and we can exhale together and not feel alone um and and that 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 sort of exhaling is sort of a representation of being boxed in in a closet or in a in a in a box that you you just can't get out of and um what finally when you can exhale you can breathe again and you can actually sort of let in light and you're open to talking about your experience and whether it be sadness anger or whatever it might be um at the time with another family who you're connecting with so connecting families to families connecting spouses to spouses um children to children um you know siblings to siblings um and grandparents to grandparents all of those things all because they're all extended families right all of those families who loved a first responder who died by suicide and um, that connection is absolutely amazing. Um, and one I will never forget. I, I have friends we, in Massachusetts. Um, we go out to dinner together. We text each other on a daily basis. Um, and even some people out in Iowa, we text each We're all part of a little group chat. And we check in with each other. How you doing? And the whole thing. And we can connect with each other. So, yeah, I'm very, very grateful. We're very grateful to have those connections with those families. So, Yes, I. It is the gelling for sure. I love it, and it, yeah. you said something in there about the um, the opening of the door, the letting the light in, yeah. and the box, right? Like mm. th- that analogy really resonated with me. And while no one's ever worded it quite that way to me, I think as you said it, that that visual actually came to my mind based on all of the conversations I've had. And at this point. I don't even, I, I, I shudder to think about the number of family members I've met from, as you said, grandparents to infants, mm, right? Like yeah. we, and you, you've, you've seen this firsthand. We have children 
who have grown up with this organization mm. with brothers and sisters that are part of that community. And so um, when, yeah. when you said that the opening the door and letting the light in, I, I had this vision of like somebody reaching into a box and pulling you or someone else out of it yeah. and, and stepping into this, you know, warm and welcoming environment. Yeah. That's and exactly what I felt like. That's exactly I, I what imagine. I felt like. Yeah, that's what. And it, that's what I see yeah. at all of these events as the the outsider looking in. And and while yes, I, I personally, as late as a year and a half ago, uh, have lost friends who are first responders to suicide. An individual who was in a video that I did, and I will listen video. You're familiar with that campaign. Wow. Uh, was in one of the videos I did. Uh, wow. We lost to suicide. Um, I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you. And you know the. When I have that experience as a first responder, as a friend, as a supervisor, as a coworker, that's one thing. But there's something else that happens when you see families that, and families are really the hub of why we serve. At, at the end of the day, like ask anyone on our team, it always comes back to the family. And mm. I am that person on our team who often has to be the one to, okay, we're, we're still in this space over here. We got to prevent, we got to do this other stuff because it's so easy to get pulled in to serving the families because I mean, quite yeah. frankly, you're all incredible. Like I have yeah. so much respect and love and admiration for our families because as I watch your, I mean, talk about resilience, like the, the ability to pull yourselves and each other through these times. Yeah. You're, you're phenomenal. And yeah. I have the utmost love and admiration for every single member of our, our, our family. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. That means so much to, to hear that. Um, I mean, this is sort of what drives us, right? I mean, it started off with the, this, this small sort of village, right, of the board members, right, those members, and you getting yourself on the board, or, or you said, well, they couldn't just turn me away because I was I just, hanging around so much, right? Okay, yeah. yeah, but then, you know, you know, as those family members, you know, started to be supported by this organization for help, um, you know, then those families start to be able to gain some strength, over time and and I believe it's over time and gain some strength and find some purpose then being able to help others or advocate or create awareness in their own communities which otherwise would not have been known I mean we've interviewed a lot of different families right even some first help families and um, you know there was one one uh, family member who shared it was it was a mom who lost her first responder daughter uh, a firefighter and um, she had shared on the interview, um, you know, we didn't know anything about PTSD. Um, she said, we just knew that our daughter was a kick-ass firefighter. And we wish we knew about that. We wish we, we, were, we were made aware of these things that could happen to, to our loved one from taking the job, right? From, from trauma of the job. And as a lot of, of first responders have shared, putting that boulder in the backpack and it gets mm -hmm. so heavy. So a lot of interviews that we've done, we've talked to first responders, they'll share that with us. And uh, she says, we didn't, we didn't, we weren't aware of any of that. And we wish we were. We wish we were sort of pre-briefed ahead of time and said, you know, yeah. these things could happen. So, Joe, let's talk. And Jay, do you want to hop in before I join in, get into, into more of this? 
Um, yeah, I think I do. I, I have a few thoughts. First of all, I really, really uh, admire the passion that I'm hearing from you, and, and I appreciate the talking points as, as well. Uh, I'm going to touch on a few of them, and, and I hope to bring that together into a question that you might be able to um, you might be able to shed some light on based on your experience. Uh, early on in this conversation, uh, you you spoke about your experience in the military and, and sort of uh, organizational wellness, or maybe a lack thereof, and how that led to to tragedy, I guess. Right, and tragedy comes in a lot of different a lot of different forms. Um, and that's why I think these conversations are so important for a number of reasons. But one is normalizing this stuff, getting the information out there, getting people to understand it. You also talked about undiagnosed PTSD, pretty specifically with, with numbers, right? And we know enough about human beings and their exposure to trauma um, that that there's there's a result, right? There's a consequence to our experience after we after we encounter certain events and, and imagery uh, and all of that. So I guess what I'm wondering is um, how you think one impacts the other, or maybe do you think that the percentage of, of those individuals within an organization that are walking around with undiagnosed post-traumatic stress, uh, I imagine that would have an organizational influence, right? Everybody's walking around traumatized, and the reason I brought up normalizing the conversation is because in the past, what was normalized within these cultures of first response and the military culture for reasons that are understandable? What did you think you were going to see, right? The resources hadn't really developed. We didn't have that awareness, so it was it was suck it up and drive on, um, and that wasn't negative. That was the best that could be done for a really long time. So I'm wondering... Uh, whether you think that a percentage of undiagnosed PTSD leads to circumstances like suicide within organizations, if you think it could be prevented with with more awareness, and any other thoughts that you have kind of broadly on on that? Yeah, so painting with a rather broad brush right now, and I think we can kind of narrow it down as, as we move forward with some of the other questions, but the short answer is yes, I do. And in the last several months, I have become, and I've always kind of been uh, interested in it and a little bit of a student in uh, emotional literacy and emotional intelligence. And uh, I've, I've just become much more, it, it seems to be the, the passion I have right now where my mind is really going with research and, and reading. And so I think to your point, Jay, the so let's take within that, 85%, which, you know, according to Seligman and the, the research from, uh, this is back in 07, but uh, that time frame, that 85%, if even 1% has, of that had undiagnosed PTSD, that's a large number. Mm -hmm. uh, but in that remaining 84%, the reality is that we all have adverse experiences. We all have these, you know, growth and development moments that are somewhat stunting in our ability to communicate with true empathy and compassion and uh, effectively deal with the dark emotions that we're experiencing. And just because a person doesn't have PTS by diagnosing and meet all the, um, you know, the, the technical diagnosis from a, a psychological perspective doesn't mean that there aren't 
enough artifacts of experiences that lead to, and you know, the, take the joiner model in of um, um, risk factors into consideration here when we're looking at uh, a thwarted belonging and uh, perceived burdensomeness. Is these two things collide? Um, you don't have to have PTS to experience that. And among that 85%, there's an entire population of people who aren't dealing with their, their stuff, right? They're not leaning into it. They're not, you know, getting out there and getting the help they need. Leaders aren't positioning themselves to effectively engage with real meaningful wellness checks with their people. Uh, a lot of folks are just checking the box. We go in and, you know, when somebody asks how we're doing, we say we're fine, which is like asking what's two plus two and they say math, right? It's, yeah. it's an answer, but it's not the right answer. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so I, I think you're, you're, you're spot on, but I don't know that it has to be a diagnosable condition mm -hmm. that leads to right. uh, some sort of a, a critical incident. And that critical incident, like we're looking at it through, a, a take the iceberg analogy here. Suicide is a crystal of ice on the mental health iceberg, right? Like it is the very top and it's the one that we can easily be drawn to as the most significant thing. Mm -hmm. Suicide, murder, suicide, the stuff that happens in the, the, the big events. But look left of that. Mm -hmm. All of the yeah. stuff that happens along this timeline right. that leads to that, the loss of marriages and, and children's relationships and Finances. Know, the loss of financial endeavors, yeah. right? Like all of the things that happen. So anyway, I'm, I'm babbling here, but dude, you're, you're spot on. I think there's a lot there. Mm. Yeah. I agree with you. It doesn't have to be, I don't think it does have to be a diagnosis of, you know, PTS um, further to, to lead to, other things there's there's many many contributors that lead to um somebody struggling right within departments and and that could be just maybe it's a, a depression you know a, from a depression from from something else um maybe it's uh going through a divorce um that they they haven't witnessed a, a traumatic event, but they're they're going through a divorce, and that leads to all different types of stuff. But the the bottom line is, they don't talk about it, or yeah. they don't share about it within their peer with their peers or within their department um, for the fear of that. So I want to get in and talk about that mental mental wellness and force response um, in within departments stigma. Yeah. What does that mean to you? What does that word mean to you, represent to you? Yeah, so stigma is, I think, and I'm out on a limb here, so I'm curious what the comments might look like in the bottom of this as people weigh in on it, but the, I think often it's something we carry that is much like a, a prejudice or a bias. It's often unfounded when it comes to evidentiary support, right? Yes. It's a deeply held belief that we couldn't support with facts if we had to in most cases. And when I really get involved in conversations at the organizational level with leaders, and this is where I think stigma in the rank and file is heaviest, is when leaders walk around carrying the stigma. Yeah. When uh, they believe that if they seek help, they're going to look weak or they're going to lose their job or these are so unfounded at this point mm. that 
uh, by and large, wherever I go, when I start really talking about what happens when somebody asks for help in this agency, more often than not, they get the help they need and they come back to work. Uh, there are times where the the help they need sees them out of the profession, right? They, they have that realization. Mm. But very few times, as I've, I've had these conversations now on a national level with a lot of different individuals and organizations, very few times is asking for help the catalyst to a career ender. There are other things that, and not asking for help, waiting until catastrophe happens, right? Yeah. Getting caught, you know, drunk on the job, uh, a, a traffic accident related to uh, reckless behavior, right? Like those sorts of things, a domestic violence incident, those, those are career enders. Simply raising your hand and saying, I need help, that may not be. Yeah. And it may not be. My experience has been in most cases, it is not. Right. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because there's, you know, there's, there's, I think there's, for me, just, just going from experience and listening to first responders, I'm in a very fortunate situation here. I own a little cafe and it's a hub for first responders. It's all around me and they come in every day. We're right at the hospital. So first responders come in, the fire department is there, the police department is there and all different towns come in. So they all come in here for their coffee every day. And um, and I get to talk to them. And the thing is, is that, um, you know, when I when I talk about stigma, right, to, to, to first responders, there's two different angles. One, I think, when a first responder, just say like Jay, I'm pointing over at Jay here, just say like Jay, um, is he's a first responder in his, in his department and um, he doesn't want to let anyone know what's what's going on with him whether he's uh his backpack got too heavy and that last call didn't sit with him very well and um he just doesn't want to talk about it because no one else is talking about it and there was other there was other guys on that call with him and they seem okay so it's not like self-imposed stigma right mm-hmm. and then there's uh a, another type of a stigma where when he probably came in on the job it was you don't talk about this stuff. Go home and drink a, a few beers and sleep it off and shake it off. Um, and there's that type of stigma. So even if you did want to talk about it, I'm not talking about it because this senior guy just told me I, I'm not to talk about this. I have to shut my mouth. And then there's coming from the higher up in the department and, uh, you know, the administration. And it, it, there's that then level of it where a first responder might go and seek help from his department and um, he might ask for help and another first responder is looking on and sees this guy getting the support that he needs to get help and get well. That first responder that's looking on is going to believe that if I need help, I'm going to receive the same, Right. But if a first responder on the other side of that, if a first responder goes to seek help and he is um, penalized or, um, you know, there's ridicule and retribution, right? I've heard those words too. Um, and does not get the support that he needs. Another guy looking on is going to also believe that he's going to be treated that way and is not going to seek help. So... So there's, right, so, and then it, it just carries on and it carries on 
So I think the reason why myself and Jay started doing this is because we both have a passion, right, of different ends of it. Jay being a first responder and um, and our, ourselves going through um, a loss of a first responder as a family. And, you know, we both connected by talking as a first responder coming into the cafe, right, and oh, okay. sh- sharing a passion. And um, we said, you know what, we're, we're going to do this. We're going to do this podcast and talk about it trying to make it easier for first responders to be able to talk yeah. about it within their departments so that they can realize that they're not weak. There's some form of weakness associated with saying, this doesn't, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing too good here. Um, yeah. There's some sort of weakness in the first com- responder community to, to say that. And mm. we want to let them know you're not weak. You are a leader when you s- be an advocate for yourself to speak up and say, I need help. And I don't care if you're going to talk about me behind my back because yeah. I'm going to get well. And my family is also going to be well for that benefit, right? And anyone who loves me are going to also benefit from that because I'm going to be well. Um, do you want to start to chime in on that a little bit, if, if you can? Yeah, there's nothing more powerful, in my opinion, than an authentic person right that is the most uh impressive thing in nature to see somebody who is truly themselves and uh i think you hit the nail on the head where uh let me let me backpedal just a little bit yeah when i say by and large i'm seeing a positive result that is true but that doesn't mean that i haven't seen absolutely horrendously toxic cultures yeah. and bad leaders, right? Yeah. Like they exist. Yeah. The, the way to defeat that though, I, I, I believe just based on personal experience, research supports it. And you know, what I'm seeing out there in the field is be true and authentic to yourself. Know yeah. who you are. There's, there's so much courage in saying in this moment, this, response that I'm experiencing may manifest as anger, but in reality, I'm scared to death. In reality, I'm experiencing grief. In reality, I'm ashamed of what just happened, Yeah. right? When when we can admit those experiences, that's courage. Mm-hmm. And courage, people follow that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you gave the example of uh, an employee in any agency, in any capacity, goes to that agency's leadership or their EAP, and they say, hey, I'm going to go seek help. I'm going to take advantage of that program, Chief, that you've been talking about where we can go and get uh, these six free sessions. I'm going to do that, and uh, I don't want anyone to know about it. They go, they get it done, and as this starts to, they start to get the help they need, they let people know. Inevitably, in almost every case I've, I've learned of someone taking advantage of these, it only stays a secret for the first couple sessions. Yeah. Jay, you, you you experienced this? Yeah, well, I sure did experience it, and I can I can really relate to when you talk about um, the courage portion. Like, once you get to the point of overcoming that stuff and seeking help, uh, I think generally, and I've seen others go through the process as well. Uh, there's a sense of strength, right? That there's a sense a return to to wellness, or at least a glance in the direction that that that's that that's where you're going to head. And uh, within this culture of, of men and women that, that are called to service, that, that are drawn to service, we want to spread that to our peers, right? When we're, when we're doing well, uh, most of the rescue of personalities, and then, you know, you start recognizing around you when, 
oh boy, here's someone that I care about, and and I can see that they may, they may, be showing some signs that they're going through through something too. And I want to help that person. So you do start speaking up, and and many of of uh, the men and women that I've seen begin uh, to to recover from from trauma symptoms have have done the same thing. They've shared that with the people around them. I think this this part of the conversation is so interesting in that. We began talking about stigma, and, and Linda kind of brilliantly laid out a lot of the external factors yeah. that contribute to a person carrying self-stigma. And then at that point, the outcome is they're getting in their own way of getting help, right? Yeah. But that's what just what we see, or what we don't see maybe, right? But that's the part that begins to matter in terms of a person having one of these uh, incidents, whether it's a DUI, whether it's... You know, any kind of problems that, that we understand more often than not are symptoms of a person that, that's carrying trauma. That's not who they were before they went on this call, had that critical incident. They didn't, it sure is a rarity that anybody gets into the, the line of work of first response uh, that, that's not super well intended. Um, and I think it's very interesting. And I think it's also interesting, you know, those building blocks that, that come together and create a person really stigmatizing themselves and standing in their own way of getting help. And also how that sort of mirrored the concept of organizational resilience or readiness and how that impacts in the individual and likewise that we talked about right at the beginning. It really is uh, the organizational culture and what the individual who's suffering is absorbing in terms of uh, an openness and, and a respect for treatment, uh, the spreading of, of an awareness about the human condition and, and, and the way the trauma can impact it. Like these, those are the intersections that are going to determine whether a person is having a domestic incident or, or whether they're at a wellness retreat. Um, and, you know, I mean, the good thing is there's more and more of these conversations happening. We're starting to see awareness within the community of, of you know, military veterans first response. Um, and it's a pleasure to, to see that awareness grow. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. So, so I don't know if you want to respond to that, Joe, um, what Jay was just said there. If not, I'll chime in. <laughs> yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay. So while, while I, I agree with you, Jay, by the way, um, so what I wanted to sort of get into is, um, which you're well adversed in, because I know you sort of, you know, go into obviously agencies, right, different agencies and be able to do resilient stuff, right? So, like, if, if, if there's loads of chiefs listening in here tonight, right, and all different departments listening in here, because I know we have a lot of first responders listening in. Um, what... What is going to make it, what needs to happen in those departments um, where there is there's just a holdback of that fear, right, of I could lose my job. Uh, I've heard the, the word, the, the term, the rubber gun squad, right, if you're a police officer and you go to, to seek help, well, they're going to put me on the rubber gun squad. And, and then that leads to, well... I can't support my family. I need a paycheck, right? I can't support my family. I can't do my job. So guess what? I'm just going to try and fix it on my own. 
and and the same with you know in in the fire department you know you see that you know th- those bad calls that they go to whatever those calls might be and um you know how do you get over that how do i how do i how am i going to be able to fix this on my own and they can't you need you need to be able to do something and i know jay can can relate to this because he was one of those people that can was trying to fix it on his own for a long time mm-hmm. and he realized i can't Right. So how how can we encourage departments? Where do we start? I mean, there's some great departments. We've had some chief, we just had a fire chief on and he was one of those chiefs that sat in front of the microphone and said, I go to therapy every week. I carry that backpack just like them. And and you know what? And I encouraged them to, to, to get help and my door's open and I'm gonna support that. And it was like a breath of fresh air yeah. hearing him say that. It was like, Oh, I wanna jump across the microphone and hug you so big, you know? Um and I bet his his guys in his department who work for him, um, you know, feel really good about going to work every day, right? And and mm-hmm. and, and there's it's, there's less stress. Rather than this sort of chief, where I don't want to, I don't want to slam any chief. Or I'm not, we're not here to bash, right? But there is, you know, leaders there in departments that could do well by their labor, right? The people who work for them, mm-hmm. um, just like um, if they had a broken leg, right? A, a physical injury, they would do the whole. The whole thing of getting them cleared and getting them well and getting them back on the job. So why not with mental wellness, right? And and knowing that they're in a job that is trauma constantly, all the time. How, how can they be proactive? That's what I'm trying to get at. How can we nah, have so departments be proactive? I think, you know, we, we've, we, you actually, I think it was you who said it, um, but I know it was said at some point in this conversation, uh, Linda, that um, I think the first question that needs to be asked is, am I in my own way, right? Like, mm-hmm. am I the reason I'm not getting help? Because uh, I think that initial self-assessment is a big piece of this. And to your point about not wanting to bash leadership, um at this point, you know, I, I deal with, you know, executive level leaders on a regular basis across agencies all over the, the country. Um, in fact, I've, I've got a, a meeting with uh, an agency in Germany uh, tomorrow. So wow. like, even internationally, right? Like the, um, by and large, I don't know a senior leader anywhere who has true malicious intent, right? Like the majority I meet uh, have have worked their way in, and maybe I've just inadvertently surrounded myself with the ones who genuinely want to try. The reality is some of them are better than others. And I think there are some examples like that fire chief you just mentioned. There are great examples from agencies all over the country who are really leaning into this space and, yeah. and senior leaders who are doing it that look at them and ask what's happening over there. And am I getting in the way of, of making that happen? So there's, there's that. And then um, I think one of the other things, so when, 
ask yourself, like I would, if, if I had my way, I would put a mirror at the end of every hallway or this video camera that put you on display as you're walking through the hallway, chief. Uh, and the look on your face is blasted in front of you so that it's all you can see. And I, I challenge every sergeant, every captain, every commander, every chief out there to just imagine this for a day. The look on your face as you're moving from point A to point B throughout your station. Because mm. chances are you've got that resting chief face on and you don't <laughs> even realize it. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Right? Like, and it's not a malicious thing. It, here's here's the reality. So going back to the positive psychology piece of this, there are five elements of well-being. And positive emotion is number one. And don't get that twisted with like happiness and everybody's got to be glad all the time. Life isn't like that. But the reality is, is that in this moment, what can I do to create positive emotion for the people around me? Because you know, there's there's some great research out there from John and Julie Gottman on the one to five ratio that I should have five positive experiences for every one negative experience. And if every time I see a senior leader in my organization, it's one of those negative experiences, that's a bad thing. Mm. That's a really bad thing. Yeah. And there's the there's also some some great evidence for what what's called the Duchenne smile. And I'm sure you're all familiar with it. It's when you smile and your eyes actually show it. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's just Google authentic smile pictures. And it's it's amazing how easily people will fake an authentic smile so that it looks real. But the mirror neurons in our body know the difference in that person. Yes. And that's not an authentic smile. Yeah. They're miserable in this moment. Don't fake it, chief. Don't fake it, captain. Make yourself smile authentically when you see me. And I will smile back at you with that same smile like I'm doing right now. Like my eyes are smiling yeah. with you. Jay, I see your eyes smiling too. I, yep. This moment with us, this matters. This is a positive experience. Mm. And we don't get enough of these. And if I get 30 seconds in a hallway with my people as I'm walking by them, damn it, it's going to matter. Mm. And this, I may be, when I get to my office, the first thing I do is sit down in my chair and go, how the hell am I going to deal with this, right? But when I'm out there and... I get one chance with my people, make it matter. And so I would say that you know, create space for positive emotion. And I mean, I'll, I'll gladly rattle off the other four uh, elements of well-being that I think senior leaders could definitely engage in. We, we teach these in our supervisor readiness workshop, which we're actually doing one up not too far from you guys uh, up in Elliott, Maine. Uh, on the 13th. So I guess that's not too far from you, but yep. either way, it's, it's a hell of a lot closer than I am right now. Yep. Um, the, so, um, I, I can't stress that enough. You get one chance sometimes to create that positive space and do Ab it. Absolutely. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. You know, when you're in that moment and you're able to make eye contact, like straight eye contact with someone and even just walking by or the chief saying, you good? Yeah. You know, uh, whatever it might be. Are you good, Jay? Um, and just looking at them and just, there might be lots of other stuff going on, but if you're making the eye contact and positive emotion, that you're making that connection with another person, it's a hell of a an, an impact that you're going to make on someone because you, you feel it. You feel yeah. it. Um, what about the egotistical administrators in, within departments where there's that ego that that comes off, right? That's, I think, where a lot of um, 
you know, negativity can fall into play with as a role, right? That someone witnesses, right? And in, in negativity where there's that ego stuff. They want to be, how would you say? Um, in everything, know everything, in every little bit of everything. And yep. you know what I mean? Control type of person. What about that type of a leader? I mean, I don't call it leader, but in that in that role. Yeah. So inevitably, I mean, there are those times where leaders have to man. You know, I I love watching these memes that kind of scroll mindlessly through uh, LinkedIn or, or Facebook or whatever that compare leaders and managers. Well, in in reality, I got a job to do. I have to manage an organization. I got to mm-hmm. manage a budget. I got to manage people. And management means hands, monos in my hands in the business, right? The but leadership is that finesse, the, the, the art that goes with the science. And I would challenge those who are aware uh, of, of struggling with the, I've been called a micromanager. I've been, you know, over, I, I acknowledge that I overinvest myself in other people's uh, projects. Ask themselves why, because um, and, and, you know, I've, I've been a, a little bit uh, tempered in this this conversation. I'm much more, when it comes to teaching resilience and having these conversations, authentically, I, I present much more in a, a David Goggins style than a Fred Rogers style. So I'll curse less, but just know that, I, I mean, I get so frustrated with leaders who know they're doing that and fail to correct it, right? And they, they're, they're not looking introspectively enough. I would challenge them, if you've been told you're micromanaging, spend a little bit of time in the mirror and and with your trusted advisors and figure out what the hell's going on, right? Like there is something happening here. And the truth is you're probably scared of something. You're probably feeling overwhelmed, which is not an anger feeling. That's actually more of a a disgust and fear feeling, right? Like it is, what is the core emotion that's driving this? Because chances are there's more going on here and mm. you got to deal with that than before you, you drive your people insane and you crush morale. Um, and, and I, you know, I say this as if I've always done it right. No, hell no. Like I, I have micromanaged. I've had people complain about me for it. And I, when I look back at those moments in my life, when I was doing that, it was the times when I was under that kind of pressure that I was overwhelmed and I mm-hmm. was scared. Right. Yeah. That's when I did that. Yeah. So there's more going on there. Yeah. I, I thank you for saying that. I mean, because it's sort of an opportunity for someone that maybe the department is struggling, the morale is down, maybe retention in the department, right? Or people are leaving or transferring out. Yeah. Um, um, is all part of that too. And and getting to have an opportunity to be able to look at those things and say, Hey, you know what? I'm just gonna take a look and see what's really going on here and maybe we can make things a little bit better it will also reduce stress uh, within the department um, because if someone has a fear of knocking on on your chief's door right I'm sorry um, but if someone has a, a fear of knocking on the chief's door um, because they're just going to get chewed out of every time or um, they're being ridiculed or whatever it might be um, every time well then they're not going to knock on the door and um, yeah. you know so and it, and it stops and then and then they end up transferring out so it's sort of something to look at what would you like to see um you know as far as i know you do a lot of training right awareness you're you're very very involved in first help 
with awareness, creating awareness and within departments. And I love that um, about what you do. Let's talk, can, we talk, can we bring in families in there a little bit? Like, how can we get, what do you, what's your take on getting families involved within departments? I mean, I, I mean, a lot of first responders don't go home to their families and share the, the stuff that's going on that they're after seeing in the last couple of calls and, and then they're disconnecting from their family and they're being short-tempered with the kids and they're, you know, they're going to a soccer game and they, they don't want to have a conversation with the other dad that's at the, the soccer game and all that type of stuff. So, like, how can we get families involved or do you think that's important? I absolutely think it's important. There was a um, an analogy, not an analogy, a horrible saying that you know was uh, existed in the military before I joined, but there was a little bit of remnants left over as I was coming in. Uh, that if the military wanted you to have a family, they would have issued you. Yeah. Right, Jay, you're, you're laughing along. You're you're familiar with this. Yeah. I think. The same is true in a lot of the first responder space, just inadvertently. And you know that the number of academy classes that bring in families is is actually pretty high. Like as I travel around and I talk to people, families are often brought into fire academies and police academies towards the end for people to engage and to learn. And they have these family days. And then the, the sad part is the number of people who have told me that part of that briefing is that divorce is common. Oh, no. Right? Like, come on. <laughs> we, no, let's, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about the perseverance of people yeah. getting it right. Yeah. So uh, I, I think – so. I, I kind of went on a little bit of a tangent there. I, I meant to take a little bit more of a direct route, but the, so here's the, my, my thoughts on it. And what I talk about when we used to talk more about the, the family component in our supervisor class, we, we talked family and policy. Well, here's the problem when you talk family and policy in a room that has um, everybody from young FTOs with like four years on the job to uh, chiefs with 40, that conversation goes everywhere with those two topics so we stripped those out and we're talking about them now in different more um secluded conversations let's talk about family let's talk about policy so in the family space getting families involved is incredibly important one of the biggest lies we tell ourselves is i'm a different person at work than i am at home stop lying you are not a different person you're just living your life with different degrees of transparency with the same values attitudes and beliefs mm -hmm. right so when i go home and i hit that that recliner that gil martin talks about in um in his book where you know this this is my chair well that is that, right? Like, uh, but when I go to work and I start crushing it and chasing the dopamine and uh, I am living on this high, like Charles Lowe uh, from Project Hurt, he talks about the concept of uh, winning at work and losing at home. I think many of us can relate to that, right? Like we are on this high, but then we go home and we're, we're struggling. Well, here's what I put in um, pretty much every class that I, I teach is at some point I start talking about the effects of cortisol on the hippocampus and that hippocampus has a couple of primary functions and, and among the largest are that it stores, it stores short term memory, right? So when we go to the mall at Christmas time, we find that perfect parking spot, then we go and we deal with all that junk that we got to deal with inside. We spent too much money and we come out. What's the first question we ask? 
the hell did I park? I couldn't right? park, 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 because yeah. that working memory wasn't wasn't clear, and it doesn't. And we didn't store where we put our car, right? So there's that. But here's where the the tearjerker happens. I've literally had hardcore professionals come up to me during the break because we normally take a break right after this module in both the supervisor and responder class. Um, come up to me with tears in their eyes talking about you, you hit me in the feels when you said this next part, which is when I'm on the back deck and it is a Sunday afternoon and my kids are playing and they're laughing and running in the sprinkler, that memory just fades away. It doesn't transfer from the short-term memory to the long-term memory because that hippocampus is so inflamed with cortisol and the chronic stress that I'm dealing with that, uh, I can't capture that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then when I go back inside and I'm stressed about whatever, and I'm trying to engage in these conversations and this person that I'm sharing space with has been dealing with all of this family stuff without me present. Uh, and now I want to suddenly engage in the, here's how to manage business in the house. No, dude, I got this. So there's, you know, and I'm saying this as if I'm the only one who's, no, everyone, as I travel around, we, we share this common experience here. Yeah. And so to the point, yeah, we have families, whether they were issued to us or not, and for agencies and leaders to not acknowledge that is damn near negligent. And so we have to wow. address the fact that that exists. Mm -hmm. The other thing we have to do is acknowledge the fact as individuals and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, it, and you maybe had a little bit of a different experience, you know, Linda, but um, most of the first responder families will say, you know, I knew what was happening. I, I knew like, you know, they, all of the stressful times I knew when it was a bad day, I would hear the rumors, the text chains start, whether he tells me or she tells me or not. Right. Like I kind of have an idea of what's happening. Um, but we don't talk about it. Mm. And the, the number of times that's been shared with me by both responders who have become aware of it and family members who are willing to talk about it. And so the, I think so in terms of agencies, acknowledge it, it exists. And the chronic stress that's happening at work because our people just want to crush it there. And they are, even if they are that crusty, you know, 12 year person who is just going through the motions to get the check, they still want to do at least the minimum as best they can. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they go home and they, they destroy stuff at home inadvertently in most cases, which mm in many cases becomes self-medicating domestic incidents, yeah. uh, separations that cause additional stress. But then on the individual level, we own that. And, you know, speaking from experience in, you know, two different experiences in life, my, my failed marriage mm -hmm. and the one that's going to last me forever. Yeah. Um, I, I have to acknowledge that uh, I've got an obligation to share where I'm at and uh, to acknowledge that they already know most of what's happening to some extent. Mm. Does, that, does that make sense? And I know yes. like, this is one I love to engage in the conversation because uh, inevitably somebody's like, yeah, but, and you know, we, we can go back and forth about it, but this has just been my experience. And as I talk to many others, it's not one I, I don't share. It's, yeah. it's shared across yeah. a wide spectrum. So if departments engaged with families, fire, EMS, police, all across the board, 
they engaged in families, brought them in, like in some way, family cookouts, whatever it was that they're engaged in with the departments from from the get go. It was made a normal. What difference do you feel it would make? Good question. Yeah. So, oh, go ahead, Jay. Did you? No, I didn't even mean to say that out loud. I mumbled. Good question. Yeah, so where where I'm seeing effectiveness, both in terms of my experience with family readiness groups, and readiness has, I mean, if I could put one bold word in the English language, one big billboard, it would be be ready, right? Mm. Ready for life, right? And uh, mm, I, love that. I think family readiness has so much meaning to it that we really kind of need to wrap our heads around. And so when I've seen it work in both uh, first responder organizations and military organizations are when it's authentic, we're not checking a box because we had to, we're not, and you mentioned cookouts, great example, but take a look at who's not there. Take a look at um, what families are represented, who gets the attention, who doesn't Um, be mindful of that. Yeah. Leaders need to go to those, not because the chief made them, but because they give a damn, because they care and they want to see their people in that space. I would challenge that uh, people need to know the names of their directs children, not because it is a uh, an obligation, because I have it on my little checklist of things I have to do as a leader, but because I care enough to want to know. Right. Like these are people that matter to that person. And that person is the as a leader, the center of my universe. Right. Like the, yes. I, I exist to serve them. And that person is so important in their life. So, yes, I would say cookouts. Absolutely. But be mindful of who's not present. The, I love those days when they do like spur rides or, or whatever, you know, first responder agencies call it where they bring in families and let them climb the ladder truck and, you know, hold a fire hose and, yeah. and that kind of stuff. I mean, like touch a truck or whatever. Tour, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like touch yeah, a go, truck. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Linda. Sorry. Like a touch a truck type of thing. Yeah. 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 yeah absolutely. absolutely. Bring in, bring That's in why the- I wanted to be a firefighter, right? I get to go to one of those things <laughs> and hold a fire hose for the first time. Yeah. Like, this is super cool. I get to put a fire out. Like, so, uh, and I realized that you have recliners, better food, all that kind of stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. So, they, ha- they have, uh, they have a kitchen table too, I hear. Yeah, in the fire right. department, yeah. The, uh, I, I heard this, this guy, this firefighter came up to me at uh, one of the trainings uh, and he said, um, you know, the, the one thing that, all the, the cops and firefighters definitely do have in common in this room. All the joking aside, what? they all want to be firefighters. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's a cool one. So when you, I, I think that also there's like, um, you know, an opportunity for, you know, departments to have readiness, um, like workshops, bringing in experts like yourself um, and others who maybe trauma specialists or whatever, who are sort of able to create awareness with families, right, of maybe pointing out those red flags. These are things that you could be, you know, watching out for or mindful uh, um, when you're at home if you notice these things. And, and, you know, also maybe providing resources for families. If you're noticing these things, hey, you can call this number, you can call within the department or even having like a family liaison um, you know, within the department that can be that that contact person for families if they wanted to reach out and they could find a resource available for the family that's 
going through, whether it be finances or, um, you know, they notice their husband or wife, you know, heavily drinking and, and being able to sort of put it that way rather than, you know, having to bring in like a whole, like maybe peer support, maybe you can connect it that way. But there's also peer support too, right? Um, within departments. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So ideally, if, if you had a no, a no budget, Joe, and, and you were able to, to be able to, because you're out there creating awareness, right? And the readiness workshops. Can you just start to go into those a little bit? Do you go into, I keep on skipping over and saying, he's yeah. talking about that and I want to talk about them a little bit. Do you go into departments? Are you available to go in? Like share with us. Yeah, so here's I mean, the, the short version. I'll, uh, uh, yeah. I'll try to keep it brief, although obviously I spend days talking about it. Yeah. Um, the We've got four different workshops. Uh, the Responder Readiness Workshop is the hub. We, we call it the, the flagship program. And everything else kind of revolves around that, as does the professions, right? It revolves around the responder. Yeah. Um, and in that, we talk about... Um, performance, which is we look at stress in that workshop as, you know, you've got your uh, operational, you know, cumulative type stress and you have your acute traumatic stress. Um, But we do it in a way we use Dr. Kelly McGonigal's work and others have researched, but we really kind of, you know, she ties a good bow on it in the book, The Upside of Stress. Um, Look at it in terms of stress is inevitable And the one thing we should do is get better at being stressed, Mm. right? Like it's going to happen, lean into it and get good at it and and lean into that discomfort, be good at it. The other thing is she gives some great examples that we really tie into training. We've kind of reworked them a little bit on how to respond to stress. Obviously everybody knows about the sympathetic response, the fight, fight or freeze response, right? But there are other options I have, which includes, I can look at life as a challenge in this particular moment, this stressful thing that causes me to want to run away or fight something. This is a challenge and I can uh, face this challenge head on. I can get excited about it. And, you know, I love this part of the conversation when we're talking about first responders and the things that excite us, because obviously there's the excitement of the job, but when I get men and women talking about life and what's excite, what excites them, like things about kids and crafts and like, you know, their house and all kinds of really cool stuff comes out about what excites people. And then the last one she talks about is tend and befriend, uh, which is really that oxytocin releasing, being close to people. We have a natural desire for connection during stressful times. And yet the first thing we do is push people away. So there's a lot of that in the performance piece. In the prevention piece, we talk about the range of resilience. We've boiled resilience skills down into five Critical skills for resilience, recognizing the good, active constructive responding, notice the world around you, that grounding mindfulness type stuff, getting up and moving and all of the benefits of bilateral stimulation of the brain and all that Mm -hmm. and energy management, breathing properly, you know, caffeine consumption, anxiety management, that sort of thing. That's the the range and the, the prevention piece on the persistence piece. We talk about getting a good list of, um, resources in five different categories and how to have those difficult conversations. We use the results-oriented communication model, which is something I developed completely unrelated to first responder mental health. But when I really started pulling the threads on it, I was like, this, this works. Mm. And so we use a video that we did in conjunction with Axon to create a scenario where people actually have to engage in a difficult conversation and kind of put them in that immersive experience. So the responder readiness program, four hours, and it is very fast paced. 
Uh, all of our facilitators are, are really skilled at, okay, we got one dispatcher in the room. I had a ski patrol person in um, New Mexico recently. So like it, we, we cater to what's in the room. Um, and then uh, the supervisor class, uh, that's people, positivity, and prevention. So range is, is covered in there. Uh, but in the, the people component of it, we talk about how stress affects our people much the same way we do in the responder class, but it's much more people oriented. And then in the um, positivity piece, we take a somewhat deep dive in all five components of uh, well-being. So um, talked about positive relationships already or positive emotions already, uh, engagement and the concept of flow and, you know, using character strengths and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, and then uh, meaningful relationships and, and having relationships in our life meaning does the work I do matter values and beliefs. We do a great values activity during that one and achievement. We talk goal setting and how that's important for supervisors in leadership space. So PERMA, and then the, we end it with uh, operationalizing well-being with uh, after action reviews. I think after action reviews often get mixed up with CISD and no after action reviews are a leader's tool and the fire service gets this right. For some reason, a lot of law enforcement agencies are still struggling with it. I'll tell you, Go to your fire station, probably they're already doing it. So um, the doing good after action reviews that are hot washes that really get after things tactically, but how we can use that as a wellness tool. And we also offer a, um, a provider workshop that's four hours uh, that really kind of works on networking and, and creating a space for uh, providers to start to become culturally competent and introduce them to ways they can. Mm. And then uh, lastly is the family workshops, which we're actually in the process of rewriting. Tim Barfield is kind of taking that on along with Christy Lister, one of our family members, and they're going to kind of rework how we do the family workshop. So more to come on that one. Wow. We've done them and we really enjoy doing them, but I think we can do a better job with them. Right. Wow. And how can folks, how can those um, departments and supervisors and uh, how can they get know about these workshops? Where can they find you? Um, is it posted on social media? Are departments emailed? Um, how do they know? Yeah, so uh, there's a couple of different ways of getting to us, but the easiest would be firsthelp.org slash training. Just go to one stelporg slash training and a description of all of our workshops, our catalog, and a link to request the training. At this point, our 2024 calendar is starting to um, uh, starting to fill up. So we are, are kind of, I mean, we're not running out of space. We'll, we'll find more trainers uh, and we'll, yeah. we'll make it happen. But we are pretty particular about who, who can train and, and what they do. You know, it's, we're, we're pretty solid on that. So yeah. um, the, uh, but yeah, that's the best way in is to put a hosting request in there. Okay, perfect. I'm glad that we got that out there because we do want to, you know, obviously have departments, um, if this is something when they're listening tonight and be able to say, hey, we could we could do something. We're here. We have this in our budget and we can bring it in and to help our families. Um, if you had no budget, right, and you were running a department, an agency, and you said this hands down needs to be done and it's going to be able to help what would you do yeah so um stop looking at wellness as a program and start looking at it as a culture would be my first step and in order to do that i cannot get after wellness as being something we do but instead what we do um oh without... i want to hug you right now 
Stop looking at wellness as a program. Yeah, stop looking at wellness as a program. Oh, my God, I want to hug you. But anyway. So I look at this in terms of uh, wellness in nine dimensions. Peggy Swarbrick does uh, a great job in wellness in eight dimensions. I think family needs to be at standalone. So as as a coach, I look at it in terms of nine dimensions. But I know that... Uh, my agency struggles with nine dimensions of wellness. And that ranges from obviously my physical fitness. So you've got members of your department who would love to be certified personal trainers. That test is $600. Why are you not sending people to become certified personal trainers? Many agencies are doing it and I applaud them for it. Keep doing that. Financial wellness, what are we doing to help people manage their budgets? If we look at the stressors that families are facing, almost every instance has some sort of financial component to it. Yeah. It's, it's mind blowing yeah. that we're not investing more time on good financial management. And there are, are great guys out there. Nick Doherty is, a, is somebody that I would look to, uh, the financial cop. But there are others who, um, one of my, my own guys, Pat Burns, who's, you know, he's down in uh, Baton Rouge tomorrow morning. Uh, he's, he's a, uh, Dave Ramsey guy, right? So there are plenty of resources out there that need to, you know, so I'm not going to go through all nine dimensions, yeah. but the, take a look at all Peggy Swarbrick's eight dimensions of wellness, add family to it as a standalone. And you have the Joe Willis version and wow. that comprehensive fitness component is what's missing. And I would invest every penny of my unlimited budget in that, because I believe wholeheartedly the rest will take care of itself. Yeah. You know, Jay, you hit the nail on the head. Nobody comes into this business thinking they, they want to do harm to the community, thinking right. they're going to lose their, their stuff someday on somebody and, and, you know, start throwing stuff around in the back of the ambulance. No, that's not what happens. Yeah. But if I could fix that, I can fix patient care. I could yep. fix uh, use of force complaints. I, I genuinely uh, believe that. Maybe I'm, I'm, you know, kind of doe-eyed about the whole thing, but I think that's where I would I don't go. Oh, so. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I think you're so right. Yeah. I, I mean, it's so many of the things that you're, you're saying are, like, thought-inspiring. I'm going to be thinking about this interview uh, for quite some time and, yeah. and, and many of the points that have been brought up. Inspirational. Yeah, I love that. Stop looking at wellness as, as a program and as part of a culture. I can tell you I'm going to be repeating that and mentioning your name every time I talk to somebody a chief or whoever's able to come in and listening to us um, and the podcast because it's so true, yeah. right? To yeah. invest that into, yes, it needs to be part of the culture, that wellness, physical wellness as also mental wellness, right? And, um, or emotional wellness um, and be able yeah. to bring, bring that in, in into the department and make it part of the culture for sure. Because I know like uh, academies, right, are doing so much better now, right, from years and years ago. And, but they all get like about mental health uh, maybe a day of mental health when they're in the academies, but then they all go out to different departments. Yes. Right? And, and they all branch out. So and the, and the, let's just pause on that. The whole, the four hours of mental health training being required by a state, I think is phenomenal. I'm glad that many are doing it or the mandatory check-ins or that kind of thing. But if that's the one thing 
a department does for mental health throughout the year, or that one four hour class that the academy is required to give is all they get on mental health. Mm. Wrong, wrong deal. So yeah. the range of resilience, the, the way we've designed this, and we do our range of resilience train the trainer, my target audience, and you know what we tell our trainers and all of our advocates out there is that the target audience for this, for a train the trainer, is not your wellness coordinator, it's not your peer support team. It's because when Joe Willis comes to a department, everybody's like, yep, there's that first help guy dude i didn't grow up there like yeah. that's not who i was i haven't always been yeah. a mental health guy right yeah. uh and th- what we need is that firefighter who is the the instructor out there at the on the fire grounds and actually you know showing them how to put out fires or how to run a truck or, or whatever they're doing and when the helmets come off and they're sitting on the tailboard and bsing and everybody's sweaty mm-hmm that's the right time to talk about recognizing the good. That's the right time. And in the moment, be a leader, be a tactical leader about it. Yes. And be intentional about pulling the thread on what went right because the negative stuff's going to present itself. I don't have to make that happen, right? But yeah. I do have to make the positive stuff happen. Yes. The, the right person to talk about grounding is your EVOC instructor. I mean, everybody knows those saw spots on the steering wheel. Right. Yeah. Well, now let's talk about breathing. Like if breathing is not part of EVOC training, we're doing it wrong. Yeah. Yes. Right. So there is so much more to this and Ugh, I'm the right yeah. guy to teach it at, at this level, but I genuinely believe the right person to talk about it is the chief when she's talking about whatever's happening in the department and uh, the recognizing the good or being intentional about active constructive responding, like sitting up and looking at people when they're talking to you, right? Yes. Not, not doing this with their phone, right? Yes. Like, there's, there's so much more to this. It, I'm, I'm on a tangent again, but no, uh, no, I no, genuinely no. Only believe you hit the nail on the head about it's not something that I can just do once a year, call it training and call it good enough. No, get out there and lead like you mean it. And actually apply the things that you say matter and put it to work and if you're not doing it chances are it's because you're busy it's because you've forgotten and let this be your reminder because i know you care i know you genuinely want to be that leader that's leading people in the right way let this be your reminder it's not an ask to it's it's genuinely you care yes. go love your people yes mm. oh man i i, I want to hug them again I want to hug you again. I've got unlimited amount of hugs for you. Millions of hugs. I I absolutely love that. And yes, it's that's something I I could see your hand movement, your body movement. I could see the passion coming through the camera, and it's exactly how I feel about you know. Yes, you 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 can say all you want in words, but your actions you you need to follow through with your actions, right? And um and 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 let them see. Let let your people believe. Let them feel it that you're going to support them, for sure. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Jay. Yeah, it's the the scenario kind of depends on on a leader who's who's mentally and emotionally well and well informed too, right? And I think you point earlier about like the majority of of chiefs or or high level administrators are well intended. I, I I subscribe to that to that truth as well. But are they educated? Right? Are they at a point? a space and time within this conversation in their career where they understand trauma, where they understand how, how this is, is impacting their people. I love hearing that, that you're teaching about it. Uh, but if you do have that leader, you know, on, on, on a ground level that does have this information and, and they're able to spread that to the, to their people. I, I also agree with you that, 
that might just be the most important ingredient and yeah. and the difference maker because yeah. you can see it yeah. even at a glance like a shift or a group when uh there's wellness within that group the the equipment's checked differently it's maintained differently yes. what the conversations right. are are more productive they're duty oriented they're value based and that all that happens as an unintended consequence of all the things that you just laid out and it yeah. does start with those you know initial level leaders uh being okay themselves and Here's a vignette awareness. on that. So take a look. I, I would encourage everybody out there to, to Google Chip Huth, H-U-T-H, Chip mm. Huth, um, Power of Unconditional Respect. And if it doesn't come up right away, add baby bottles to that. Um, he, he does this great talk on um, the power of unconditional respect and, and uh, an incident that, um, you know, started with a SWAT team raid that ended up with one of his, his guys actually fixing baby bottles because they raided a drug house that also happened to be a daycare. Um, and uh, what that means, and he does, uh, you know, Chip's just a phenomenal guy, great leader. He's a, a I think he retired this year, but he was a, a commander with Kansas City PD um, and just has that mindset of, you know, what it looks like. But he, he's as or more authentic than I've been in this conversation with the I didn't get here on accident thing. And uh, it is genuinely about that leader being present in the moment. And he's he's a great example of that and has a lot of good content out there for for listeners who are looking for a guy who was is either still doing it. I think he retired, but just recently in the streets doing the business um, and, and leading people the way they should be led mm. and, um, you know, living the life the way it should be. So a uh, wow. great example with some great content there. Wow. Yep. What a great yeah. conversation tonight. Yeah. I mean, I can't wait I enjoyed for this. It. I love yeah. this. Thank you. I, <laughs> I can't wait for this interview to go out for our listeners to hear your knowledge, your passion, um, sharing, you know, your own self like about yourself a little bit about yourself how you got here and what drives you and then that takes you then into your training and and the programs that you offer to the departments that uh, definitely I, I I bet they're they're I can't say life-changing but I, I'm, I'm sure they're probably life-changing once they're adapted in, within departments and they start you know work in those programs in there um uh, i feel that they would just have nothing but beneficial well wellness within departments as a whole whether it be a leader whether it's organization whether it's financial as we talked about i just can't wait for our listeners to be able to hear that and i'm sure there's going to be a lot of people listen, listening uh, or reaching out to you joe um for more information and we've already directed them to firsthelp.org um to be able to, to, for them to go into trainings, right? Is it trainings they look yep, for? Yeah, firsthelp.org slash training. And, and feel free to share Joe at firsthelp.org, my, my email address. I, you just did. I welcome <laughs> the conversation. And it doesn't have to be a, uh, you know, deep, meaningful training. We don't have to come to the agency. Yeah. Uh, we try to do it on, on grant funding, which FirstNet has been a tremendous sponsor of this program. I, I want to actually make that perfectly clear that we're able to provide this training to the depth that we are, thanks largely in part to FirstNet built with AT&T, Dr. Anna Curry and the FirstNet Health and Wellness uh, Commission. Like all of the work they're doing is just, I'm, I'm in love with the organization and, and what, yeah. they, what they stand for. Um, and so if 
that funding isn't available, the costs are still, we try to keep them as absolutely low as possible. Yeah. And so, but it doesn't have to be that email me your questions. Like, Hey, I'm, I'm dealing with this. I'm struggling with this. Uh, and I will try to a find your resource, but B I'm a student. Like I'm constantly mm. trying to learn. What are you working on? What questions do you have? What problems are you facing? Let's work on it. Yeah, absolutely. Constantly learning. Right. If we, if we stop yeah. learning, we stop living. Right. That's it. Um, Joe, I appreciate you for coming in tonight and taking the time to share all of your knowledge with us. Um, I look forward to chatting with you in person um, soon, I hope, maybe. You never know, we'll see. Um, but I look forward and thank you for from our family, um, from myself and Jay, uh, for being with us tonight. I know Jay wants to hop in. Thank you so much, Joe. It was an absolute uh, pleasure having this conversation. I meant what I said about about a lot of the content you were sharing being being thought inspiring. I think the information that that you're sharing is um, can lead to tangible change. Um, yes. You know, it's 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 important in a way that matters. And um, I love that you're passionate about it. I love that you're sharing it. And so good to meet you, man. Thank you. Likewise to both of you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for everything you're doing and for letting me be a part of the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Joe. It was evident as soon as the conversation began that Joe is very passionate about what he does. So much so that it made us wonder, what's his story? The story behind what got him here. Joe is a veteran retired police officer. He has many years of experience behind him in both of those professions. Joe also has PTSD. He's learned to lean into mindfulness, meditation, talk therapy, and other modalities that have helped him. Joe uses his background knowledge to develop tools in the form of trainings and workshops to help others. Those are provided through the First Help Organization. They include resilience readiness workshops, departmental trainings, first responder and family resources, suicide awareness and prevention for first responders. Joe is great to have in your contacts to reach out to if your department has any questions about hosting a workshop or any other trainings offered by First Help. Till next time. Till next time.